Revelation chapter 6, beginning at the first verse. Now I watched when the Lamb opened one of the seven seals. I heard one of the four living creatures say with a voice like thunder, Come. And I looked, and behold, a white horse, and its rider had a bow, and a crown was given to him, and he came out conquering and to conquer. When he opened the second seal, I heard the second living creature say, Come, and out came another horse, bright red. Its rider was permitted to take peace from the earth, so that people should slay one another, and he was given a great sword. When he opened the third seal, I heard the third living creature say, Come. And I looked, and behold, a black horse. And its rider had a pair of scales in his hand. And I heard what seemed to be a voice in the midst of the four living creatures saying, A quart of wheat for a denarius, three quarts of barley for a denarius, and do not harm the oil and wine. When he opened the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth living creature say, Come! And I looked, and behold, a pale horse, and its rider's name was Death, and Hades followed him. And they were given authority over a fourth of the earth to kill with sword and with famine and with pestilence and by wild beasts of the earth. When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witnesses they had borne. They cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? Then they were each given a white robe and told to rest for a while longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete, who were to be killed as they themselves had been. When he opened the sixth seal, I looked, and behold, there was a great earthquake, and the sun became black as sackcloth, the full moon became like blood, and the stars of the sky fell to the earth as the fig tree sheds its winter fruit when shaken by a gale. The sky vanished like a scroll that is being rolled up, and every mountain and island was removed from its place. Then the kings of the earth and the great ones, and the generals, and the rich, and the powerful, and everyone, slave and free, hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains, calling to the mountains and rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne, and from the wrath of the Lamb, for the great day of their wrath has come, and who can stand? Now we move to the beginning of chapter 8. When the Lamb opened the seventh seal, 
There was silence in heaven for about half an hour. Then I saw the seven angels who stand before God, and seven trumpets were given to them. And another angel came and stood at the altar with a golden censer, and he was given much incense to offer with the prayers of all the saints on the golden altar before the throne. And the smoke of the incense with the prayers of all the saints rose before God from the hand of the angel. Then the angel took the censer, filled it with fire from the altar, and threw it on the earth. And there were peals of thunder, rumblings, flashes of lightning, and an earthquake. This ends the reading of the words of the Lord. As Paul comes to speak to us from this passage and opens it up to our hearts and lives, let us pray together. Dear Father, we pray the blessing of your Holy Spirit now upon Paul as he brings us the message of this day. As he interprets for us your word, the word that is living and all-powerful. And we ask you that our ears shall be open, that we will hear what you wish to speak to us, that our lives will be changed because of the sword of that very word of your Holy Spirit. Infuse us now, open us, Lord, and bless Paul as he brings us this word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. This is a visual book, isn't it? And it is good to hear it read, and it helps us to wrap our head around it. I was talking with somebody last week who spends um, some of their time in the States, two or three months at a time each year. And this particular person is a fairly talkative individual and makes it their point to talk to just about anything that moves. And um, one of the things that he did this time while he was talking to people was he just recorded some of the conversations that he had. And he recorded uh, 30, not, not, he went home and just wrote about them afterwards, and he found a single theme that was running through all of those conversations, and that theme was fear. That people are living in a great deal of fear in our day. They look at the world around them, they look at the events that they uh, see on their screens and they hear, they look in their own communities, they look sometimes even in their own homes, and it appears chaotic, it appears destructive, it appears that their lives are full of pestilence and death, and they live in fear. And in fact, if there is no God, and if there is no perspective of heaven on earth, then we ought to be terrified. And we ought to be afraid, because left to ourselves, we are evil, and we are destructive. But the message of this particular book of the Bible is that Christ is the exalted reigning king, that he is ruler over the kingdoms of this earth, and he speaks to us as his people, don't be afraid. And so as we come to this particular part of the book of the Bible, I want to remind you of a couple things. First of all, that this is the revelation of Christ. The revelation of Jesus Christ. We talked about that last week. This is a book about Jesus. And I think in particular, it is a book that gives us a glimpse into the exaltation of Christ and the reign of the exalted Christ. 
This book begins, I think, where Daniel 7 describes the coming of the Son of Man and the Ancient of Days gives to him a throne and a kingdom and he rules over all of the earth. It's also described in Ephesians chapter 1 there, the, exalta- uh, the, the, the work of our exalted Christ, and it says that God worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the age to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is the body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. So Revelation describes for us the reign of our exalted Christ and Lord. It began with a picture of him as our exalted Christ in chapter 1. And it also carried that picture through into chapter 5. And so we have a picture of the reign of Christ from his first coming until his second coming, which we know as the last days. It's important that we understand again that this is the revelation of Jesus Christ. And we fix this firmly in our heads because um, if we uh, need to, we need to pull back the curtain of our world. We need to pull back the curtain of the events that are going on all around us. We need to understand the things that are hidden from our intellect and our emotions. And that's what revelation does for us. And as we see this, we understand right away that it's Jesus who breaks the seals. And it's important for us to understand that that's his reign, that's his rule, that's his authority. And so he breaks each of the seven seals. It's also important for us to understand that as those seals are are broken and the impact of them is felt on the earth, that it is Christ who limits the impact of those uh, seals. That he restricts the length of famine, that he restricts the number of those who are killed. It's also important that in three out of the four first first seals, that we note that something was given to the rider. And that's just a reminder again that all authority comes from Christ. And Christ is the one that gives them the authority to carry out the things that they do on the earth in which we live. It's helpful for us to maintain that perspective and understand that though our world might be a crazy mess, Jesus Christ is in control of it. There's three images that I want to remind you about and keep them fixed in your heads. They are the image of a throne, which we find that Christ is seated on the throne. And that, or God is seated on the throne. It is the control tower, so to speak, of the universe. There is nothing that takes place in this whole universe, not even the farthest corner of this universe, the deepest part of our sea, over which Christ or God does not reign or rule. The second thing, and I think it's a key to understanding the book of Revelation, because after, after all, the book of Revelation is about the scroll. And remember in chapter 5, John sees one sitting on the throne, and in his right hand he has a scroll with writing on the inside and the outside and seven seals on it. And what is that scroll? That scroll is a description of the history of the world, in particular, the history of the last days. Your history, my history, the history of Parksville, the history of BC, the history of North America, the history of this world. From beginning to end, it's all contained in that scroll. The one who was and is and is to come has recorded his sovereign will in that scroll. And so it's important that we understand the import of that scroll. And then we have a lamb. 
And it's the lamb who is in the midst of the throne and he steps forward. And because he is the one that perfectly fulfilled God's plan, who lived the life that God asked him to live, who bore our punishment, who bore our pain, in him the history of the world hinges. In his life, his death, his resurrection, the history of the world hinges. And he is the one that steps up and takes the scroll from the one who sits on the throne. And so as we come then to these seven seals, we remember that these seven seals are affixed to that scroll. They are what holds it together, so to speak. These are preliminary or preemptive uh, descriptions of what the world looks like. It's not yet the scroll unfolded. It's just the seals that are on the scroll. And you'll note, as, uh, as John and Deirdre read, that we move seamlessly between earth and heaven and back to earth again. In the first four seals, we have a glimpse of what's going on on earth. In the fifth seal, we're transported to heaven, and we see the souls of those who have been martyred for their trust in God under the altar. And then in chapter or in seal six, we come back to earth. In seal seven, we go back to heaven and then back to earth. And so there's this seamless movement between heaven and earth. And that's one of the things we've been saying is that the book of Revelation gives us heaven's perspective on the events of earth. As we come to this first particular section of these seals, the first four seals, they're a unit. They go together, these first four horses. And as one has written, the breaking of the seven seals is the part of Revelation that best explains what is going on in our world. If you want to understand what's going on in our world, read Revelation 6, 1 to 8. There we have, why is there so little peace? Why is there so much violence? Why is there famine and pestilence and death? And we get the heaven's perspective on why our world is as it is today. The first four seals then give us a general reality of the world in which we live. The last days in particular from the birth of or the death of Christ to the return of Christ. We understand that one of the things which seems to summarize our world is conflict and conquest. If we could use one word, that would really summarize what's going on in our world. It's about conquest. It's about conquest in relationships, conquest in business, conquest in economics, conquest in countries. Conquest is so much of what our world is about. And it's about warfare. And we'll see that worked out as we go through these first four seals. And it's a conflict that goes all the way back to the garden. In Genesis chapter 3.15, you might recall we looked at this passage about five weeks ago, eight weeks ago, in which we described how when, uh, uh, when, when, Jesus, uh, when God comes into the garden and he gives the pronouncement of judgments upon uh, the man and the woman and the serpent, he says to the serpent, I will put enmity. That's conflict. I will put conflict between the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman. And so that conflict goes all the way back to the garden and it will be part of our history until Jesus Christ comes again, until the great day of the Lord. The question of Revelation is really, is there a God? Is God involved in history? Is history going anywhere? And the seven seals are clearly and resoundingly affirmative. Yes, God is controlled in our world and history is going somewhere. I won't say a lot about this, but it's important to know if you've read ahead in the book of Revelation, there are the seven seals, there are the seven trumpets, and there are the seven bowls. I see those basically as three cycles. And in each cycle, it recapitulates the cycle that came before it, and it's intensified. 
What's interesting is between the, uh, the sixth and the seventh uh, seal and the sixth and the seventh trumpet, there is an interlude. There's a gap. There is a break in which we get a glimpse of the church in heaven. Each of these is described or divided into four and three. And what we also see is that as these judgments um, uh, continue to unravel and as they intensify in the seals, we have a quarter of the world that is effective. In the trumpets, we have a third of the world that's affected. And then in the bowls, we have the whole of the world that is affected. They recycle and recapitulate God's work here on earth. Come to the first horse, the white horse, the horse of conquest. And in verses 1 to 8 of chapter 6, what we see is God just allowing human depravity to run its course. It's God just letting man be as man will be. It's almost like Romans chapter 1 where it says that God gave them over to a depraved mind. And so we have depravity running its full course here on earth, coming full circle. In it, in these first eight verses, in these first four seals, we see the effects of sin. And how brutal sin is in our world. And how full of hatred and pain and destruction sin is. Behind conquest is enmity and hostility and envy. And here this first horse represents a satanic parody of Christ. Some want to uh, say that this first horse, uh, this white horse with the rider is the same as the white horse and the rider in Revelation chapter 19. I don't see it. There are too many differences between the two. But Revelation is full of satanic imitations of godly realities. And so here we have the first satanic imitation of Christ. And it's Satan represented here on a white horse. And it is the horse of conquest. Satan hates God, he hates God's creation, he hates God's people, and the fullness of his work is begun to be described in this horse and its rider. You go to the book of James, and James describes conquest. He says, what causes fighting among you? Is it not your passions that are a war in your members? You desire and you don't have, so you kill. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and wage war. See, conquest is a thirst for more. Conquest is a thirst what others have. Conquest summarizes the drive of our world. And the following seals, the next three seals after this first one, give us the big picture swaths of destruction that follow on the heels of conquest. And so conquest characterizes the whole last days. This first rider is Christ's instrument of judgment. It's part of the wrath of the Lamb. That follows. The second seal is the fiery red horse. It's a description of war. That's what the text says here about that particular rider. Red is the symbol of blood. And here, war is introduced on the earth. War comes on the earth in the heels of the first horse and its riders. And war always has a spiritual root. Here the writer is described as having the power to take peace from the earth so that people should slay one another and another version slaughter one another and he was given a great sword. Is that not the description of the last 20 centuries? Has it not been a description of war and the lack of peace and the slaughter of humankind as conquest has ravaged this world in which we live? Peace may be existent for periods of times. It might show its head for a, a few years here or a few years there or a century here. But in general, this world in these last days have been 
categorized by war and slaughter. The third seal, when it is broken, it releases a black horse, which is famine. Famine is another consequence of conquest and war. As this rider goes out with a balance in his hand, it describes what follows on the heels. There is natural famine which occurs in our world, but there is also famine that is a direct consequence of wars and of conflicts. You only need to look around the world even today at some of the conflicts that are going on and how many people are suffering starvation or lack because of the war that they find themselves in. War devastates a land. War destroys crops. War imposes harsh cruelties on the weak. War requires those to some to hoard. It cuts people off from food. It thrives on greed. In war, the necessities of life and the luxuries of life are scarce. And so we see that happening here as this third rider makes his way to and fro across the earth. We see here, though, this incredible limitation, though, of Christ, that while there is famine, there is still food available. Yes, it's expensive as the wheat and barley is described as eight times more than it normally costs, or sorry, 800% increase in its cost. But there's still wheat and barley available. And then you have the voice of Christ who speaks out from among the seven living creatures, and he says, don't touch the oil and the wine. And so even in the midst of devastation, uh, Christ still allows that there be some plenty and some abundance and some available for humankind on this earth. The fourth seal is the pale green horse of death, Hades, and pestilence. I don't need to remind you, you can go find this out online on your own. Just take the 20th century in itself and look at the massive slaughter of humankind that has taken place just in that decade alone is hundreds of millions of people have died as a direct consequence of war and pestilence and death. It's difficult to think about all of this, though, with our eyes open, particularly in the truth of the fact of what we heard last week, that Jesus is the ruler of the kings of the earth. And we ask ourselves, is this Jesus' doing? Well, it is due to the fact that Jesus has come and his kingdom is broken into this world and his kingdom is being resisted and his reign and rule is being resisted. It's also part of his giving over um, of judgment on those who have resisted him and have put to death those who trust the word of God and follow the lamb. And as long as his way is ignored and resisted, the four horsemen will continue to pound their way across this world from one corner to the other corner. But again, it's important to remind that death and Hades are not out of control. Because do we not remember at the end of chapter 1, Jesus Christ says what? He says, I am the first and the last, the living one. I died and behold, I am alive forevermore and I have the keys to death and Hades. So even in the midst of all of this destruction, there is the control and the limitation of Christ so these realities that are portrayed for us in these four horsemen are part of the normal course of the history of this world in the last 20 centuries. And what we see in these seal judgments is the succession of woes that will continue to sweep to and fro across the course of this world and cause men and women to wonder whether the forces of evil are not altogether out of control. 
but I've reminded us again and again they are not. And as one commentator said at the end of the four uh, uh, horsemen, he says, and the end of all of this, he says, but evil is still on a leash. And that is the truth of the Bible. And that is the truth of the throne that is above. And that is the truth of our Lord and Savior, who is the ruler over the kingdoms of this earth. We watch the news, don't we? And we see kingdoms and societies crumble and collapse. And as we do that, we need to hear in our heads and in our hearts, Jesus say, fear not, little flock. We need to come back to the first part of Revelation and realize that the Lamb is now on the throne. He is the ruler of the kings of the earth and he has God's plan for the history of this world in his hand. And so we ask, well, what about the church? What about the church in all of this? As we've just described a a very broad um, view of what goes on in our world and has in these last days, what about the church? Well, I wish I could tell you that the Bible says that the church is spared all of this, but it's not. For when the church seeks to go the way of the Lamb, when the church puts its confidence in the Word of God, it will find itself caught in a crunch. And that's where we go to the fifth seal, and the fifth seal takes us up to heaven, and we get a vision of the church and of the people of God, particularly through the eyes of those who have lost their lives because they have followed the Lamb. Here a window is opened up for us to see the rationale behind the release of the horses of the judgment because the cry of those that are under the altar is for justice and is for vengeance. As they cry out, heaven hears that cry and responds. And so the four horsemen, the first four horsemen, are the response of the cry and the prayers of those who are under the throne now, crying out to God, how long, O Lord, how long? Their prayer is that God will judge this earth and will avenge their deaths. The psalmist prayed this in Psalm 74. We find this woven throughout the Old Testament, but there are some passages which are a little bit more clearer than others. There the psalmist says, we do not see our signs. There is no longer any prophet, and there is none among us who knows how long. How long, O God, is the foe to scoff? Is the enemy to revile your name forever? Why do you hold back your hand, your right hand? Take it from the fold of your garment and destroy them. That's a legitimate prayer, is it not? Is that not what the people of God hope for and pray for and cry out for? That God will be just? That God's justice will be evident in our world? And so, in the seal five, the fifth seal, we see those who have lost their lives for the sake of the Lamb. These first century Christians, and remember, this has a historical context. This letter was first sent to those who lived in Asia. It was read in the seven churches that are mentioned in chapter 2 and chapter 3. And they, they must have wondered what was going on in the world around them. Why in the face of this coming kingdom of God and in the promises of its, of its um, uh, conquering of this world, why in the face of all of that does Rome still to, seem to exert so much power? Such a vision of, of earth like this must be viewed through the lens, though, of Revelation 1 to 5. Because there's a reason that God has held back. There's a reason that God is waiting. There is a reason for God's uh, patience. But he is still on the throne, and his scroll does outline the direction of history. Evil has a particular focus in our world, though, doesn't it? When you think about conquest in our world, one of those particular focuses often is the people of God. 
It's amazing in how many of the wars that are existing even today that there is a way in which they tend to zero in on the people of God, that the church is one of their targets, if not the ultimate target of their atrocities. Their focus is on the people of God and they're following the Lamb for their confidence in the Word of God and their testimony of Jesus Christ. And that's what John sees under the altar. He says he sees the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the testimony which they held. In other words, they're followers of the Lamb. These are those who have lost their lives for Jesus Christ. In the temple, there are two altars. There's an altar that's outside in the general court. And on that altar, when animals were brought and were sacrificed and died, they were placed on the altar and their blood would trickle down through the altar and find its way to the bottom of the altar. And then there was a second altar, the altar of incense, which was just outside the Holy of Holies. And there, incense was continually burnt and sent up before God. I believe that the altar that John is visioning here is the altar that's out in the general court. And it's his way of saying that the people of God, many of them, have sacrificed their lives, have given their lives in sacrifice because they would not betray the Lamb. Loved ones, there is a long line of martyrs that stretches all the way back to Abel. But clearly in these last days, since the first coming of Christ until he comes again, there has been tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of men and women, boys and girls, who have lost their lives because they would not betray their confidence in the word of God or the Lamb. There are numerous places you can go to find this. I know that a few of our young adults went down to Victoria on Saturday and there they had the voice of martyrs giving a presentation and they describe some of the atrocities that are taking place around the world as Christians right now are losing their lives because of the word of God and their testimony of Christ they're losing their homes they're being cast in prison because of it you can go and read the Fox's book of martyrs you can read Jesus freak one and two you can read uh Um, um, uh, go online and see the church or the persecuted church and you can find accounts that right now all around the world and over the history of these last 20 centuries many countless tens of thousands have lost their lives I just read a book not long ago they say we are not infidels it's a hard book to read it's a read a book about the persecution of Christians in the Middle East right now and the brutalities that our brothers and sisters are suffering because of the word of God and because of the testimony of Jesus Christ are almost too much to talk about. And they're certainly hard to read about. And this is what is described in this seal. This is what is happening as the church is in this world right now. Our brothers and sisters are suffering for the faith. Do you see the encouragement, though, that's in this seal? Their prayers are before the throne, and God hears them. Secondly, they are given white robes. I love this picture because it is a sign or a symbol of purity. It's a reminder that they have been forgiven by their, of their sins by the blood of the Lamb. It's an encouragement to them to say, well done, my good and faithful servants. They're encouraged to rest. It's a beautiful picture. Uh, While we are here on earth, we work, right? We fight. We're in battle. Every day is tough. Every day we're in, we're in it hard. But when we die and if we do give up our lives uh, um, prematurely, we will rest in heaven until the great day of the Lord. And so Jesus encouraged them, rest a little longer. And he says, justice will be certain, though. 
You notice what it says very clearly in the fifth seal there? It says they are to rest a little while longer. Why? Until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete who were to be killed as they themselves had been. That's telling us that there is a certain end that God has in mind. That this world will conclude at a specific point in time. And although we're not to look and scour the scriptures to be able to determine when will Christ come, when is the day of the Lord, there are hints that tell us why we shouldn't look for that, but also that the end is certain. And here's one of them. When the last martyr lays down his or her life, when their last drop of blood is shed, then the day of the Lord will come. We don't know when that is. Do you know when that is? Do you know who that will be? We don't know, but God knows. And when that day comes, the trumpet will sound and Christ will return. There's another uh, help, though, in that in Matthew chapter 24, 14. There it says, The end will not come until the gospel is proclaimed through the whole world as a testimony to all the nations, and then the end will come. That's an incentive for you and I to continue to be evangelists. That's the incentive for I to still be involved with OM. It's the incentive for us to still support the translation work in Ethiopia. It's the incentive for you who still have strength and energy, who feel the call of God in your heart to go to missions, to go. Because we don't know when that will be. We don't know who that will be. We don't know what part of the world is that final part in which the gospel needs to be preached. But when that happens... The trumpet will sound and Christ will return. And what happens in the meantime? Well, in the meantime, we have this incredible reminder that God's delay is a deliberate delay, that he is patient, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to know the truth, that in his mercy and his kindness, we find repentance. And so the vision of this seal of the souls of the martyred saints under the altar, it anticipates the seventh seal, which we'll look at in a moment, and where we'll see the prayers of the saints that are offered up into heaven and are hurled back to earth and make a difference right here, right now. So again, seal five explains the restraint behind the first four seals. The restraint is so that people may still come to faith. The restraint is because the last martyr has not yet given up their life. As one has written, the days on God's calendar are marked off one by one in the blood of the martyrs. And until that moment, the followers of the Lamb will endure affliction because of their testimony. And then we come to seal six. This is cosmic upheaval and the end of all things. When we come to seal six, what we are done now is we're transferred to the end of the last days. We're transferred to the culmination of history. That's what we have in this sixth seal. It's the vision of the end, of the culmination of God's plan on earth. And in, in what we see in this seal also is the answer to the prayer of the martyrs described in the fifth seal. Finally, the justice of God and the vengeance of God is fully known on this earth. And here as we come to this sixth seal, what do we read? We, we read there that it is from the wrath of the Lamb. You think about Jesus that way? I know that people are offended sometimes by thinking about a God of wrath. And they say, I, I, how do you ever serve a God of wrath like that? How do you ever just serve a God that's described as he is in the Old Testament? I want love. I like Jesus because Jesus is all about love. How do you describe the wrath of the Lamb? 
It's the wrath of the Lamb that brings forth justice and judgment on this earth. And so we're back on earth again. And here we have now a picture of the unlimited display of his wrath as the whole universe dissolves with his authority. This is the great day of the Lord. This is the day of the Lord that's spoken of in the prophet Joel. This is the day of the Lord that's spoken of some of the other prophets. This is the great day of the Lord that's described by Peter in 2 Peter chapter 3, the climax of which we'll come to in Revelation chapter 20 verse 11. There's this catastrophic cosmic upheaval in the heavens and on the earth. It's what Isaiah the prophet has talked about. It's what Jesus described in Matthew 24 and in Luke 21 and in, in Mark 13. There Jesus says, and there will be signs in the sun and moon and stars and on the earth distress of nations in perplexity because the roaring of the waves of the sea, people fainting with fear and with foreboding of what is coming to the world, for the powers of the heaven will be shaken, and they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with great power and glory. Now when these things begin to place, take place, straighten up, raise up your heads, because your redemption is drawing near. Do you see what he describes in seal 6? As that seal is broken, there's an unprecedented earthquake. It doesn't only shake the earth, it seems to shake the heavens. It's a heavens quake. It's a sky quake. And what happens? The sun is blackened. The moon is bloodied. The, the stars are ripped loose from the heavens as though they're flung to the earth like uh, figs on a tree. The sky is ripped open like a scroll. Every mountain and island is moved from its spot like pebbles in the sea. This is an image of cosmic upheaval, of the dissolution of the whole of the earth. These celestial and terrestrial phenomena are, are a description of the end of this world. And so John is describing that end when the most stable features of the world are cast aside and displaced and shaken as a result of the presence of the Lord. These first five seals portray different aspects of reality that occur throughout the last days, and in particular what believers will face, whereas this last seal describes that hour in which it will all end. Suddenly, at the end of the sixth seal, we find ourselves at the end of history, and God's voice will not only shake the earth, but it will shake the heavens. And what's the, what are we left with at the end of this sixth seal? Who can stand? Who can stand before the wrath of the Lamb? Who can stand before the judgment of the Lord? When the great day of the Lord comes, who can stand? The answer is no one. The answer is nobody is able to stand. Nobody can hold back the judgment of God. Nobody can resist the justice of God. But then there's an interlude. And we'll talk about this in a couple weeks in chapter 7. All of a sudden we get a vision of 144,000 of those without number before the throne. Who can stand? The people of God. The church those who have trusted in the word of God and have staked their lives on the testimony of Christ, they can stand. Then we come to the final seal, the seventh seal, silence in heaven. This caught me off guard, silence in heaven. Particularly after coming through chapters four and five, reading something like Isaiah six. Why? Because the four living creatures are the worship directors of heaven, so to speak. 
And then we have the 24 elders that are falling down before the throne and day and night they are worshiping and praising God. And then all of creation erupts in worship before the lamb and before the one who sits on the throne. It's this constant worship, constant praise, constant um, adoration of God. And all of a sudden we read here and there was silence in heaven. Extraordinary. Why silence in heaven? I think there could be two reasons for the silence in heaven. The first is, is silence before the judgment of God. As one has described, it's the calm before the storm. There's an awareness that God is going to judge, and it's like people stand to attention, their mouths drop, and they just wait with anticipation. It's what the Old Testament writers tell us about, be silent before the Lord. For the day of the Lord is near. For God's enemies on earth, it is a silence of dread as they all of a sudden realize that they have no place to flee to. The seven angels are about to sound the seven trumpets, which are part of the seventh seal, which will unleash terrible woes upon the earth and their silence in heaven. But I think there's a second reason for silence. So the prayers of God's people can be heard. It's amazing to me as you think about this just a little bit. We live in a a world with noise, don't we? Noise is all around us. It's in our cars. It's in our homes. It's in our places of work. It's when we go for walks. It's it's planes overhead. It's cars zooming by. We live in a world of noise. Everyone is trying to talk over everybody else. No one seems to be listening. Everyone is clamoring to be heard. And all of a sudden, there's silence in heaven. Why? Why? so that God can hear the prayers of his people. Isn't there that song? I think it's a Negro spiritual, oh God, listen to your people praying. I thought of that again and again as I reflected on this silence in heaven. He does. Every murmur, every stammer, every groan, every plea, heaven hears. While conflicts raged between good and evil, prayers went up from devout bands of first century Christians all over the Roman Empire. Massive engines of persecution and scorn were ranged against them. They didn't have weapons. They didn't have votes. They didn't have much money. They had no prestige. Why didn't they have mental breakdowns? Why didn't they just cut cut their losses and join with the Romans? Because they had prayer. Because their prayers were heard in heaven. And that silence in heaven is finally broken by an angel who came and stood at the altar with a golden censer, and he was given much incense to offer with the prayers of the saints on the golden altar before the throne, and the smoke and the incense and the prayers of the saints rose before God in the hand of the angel. And then the angel took the censer and filled it with fire from the altar, and he threw it on the earth, and there were peals of thunder and rumblings and flashes of lightning and an earthquake. The prayers of God's people had ascended into heaven, unnoticed by anybody, unremarked in the newspapers of the day, and all of a sudden they're thrown to earth with immense power and effectiveness and force as prayer re-enters into history and impacts the world in which you and I live with incalculable effects. Our earth is shaken by your prayers. This is one of the, the most helpful insights of this particular section of Revelation is that our prayers impact the world. Our prayers move heaven on earth. What do we pray? Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That's what our prayers affect. And that's what we see unleashed 
in this seventh seal. Loved ones, is this your understanding of prayer? When you go before the throne of God each day, do you go with confidence that God hears your prayers? Do you go with confidence that God hears your prayers and that they're mingled with incense and they're hurled back to earth with incredible impact and power? I think prayer dominates this section. I think that that word come is really an expression of those four living creatures to Christ to come back to earth. It's the same language that's used, our Father art in heaven, hallowed by thy name. Come thy kingdom. This is the four living creatures say, come Lord. And in response, he sends the four horses out. In seal 5, we see the saints praying before the altar. In seal 6, we see ineffectual prayer as the, um, as the unbelievers pray that the rocks and the mountains will fall on them. And in seal 7, we see prayer reaching the throne of heaven. One writer wrote, The Christian who prays acts more effectively and more decisively on society than the person who is politically involved. That's a fascinating comment, isn't it? I think it's good to be politically involved. But never substitute political involvement for prayer. Never believe that you can accomplish more through political means than you can through prayer means. Another wrote, prayer is God's way of providing man with the dignity of causality. In other words, prayer is the way in which God gives us a part in the reign and the rule in his work here on earth. For instance, are we troubled by the advancements of Soji in our community and in our province? Are we troubled by the garbage that is being promoted and taught in our schools and to our children? I encourage you to write letters. I encourage you to get involved where you can. But are we praying? Are we gathering together with our families? Are we gathering together with our friends? Are we gathering together as a church? Saying, God, crush this mess. That's in our school system. Because the prayers of God's people are heard in heaven and they're combined with fire from the altar and they're hurled back to earth. I love that picture. Like when you pray, as maybe you're getting up this week and you're walking away, just look back over your head and, and in your mind's eye, just vision this hurling ball of fire flying back to earth. As God says, there's your answer. There's your answer. I'm making a difference in this world. Does not this view of earth from heaven encourage you today, loved ones? God is in control. The lamb is reigning. Even as the wrath of the lamb is right now being poured out on the earth. And I would say, finally, for those of you who don't know the lamb, who have not experienced his love, who have not had your sins forgiven and washed by the blood of Jesus Christ. There is a limited time offer. And when that last day comes, it will be too late. When that last day comes, you will not want to repent or have opportunity to repent. I encourage you now to bow your knee before the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords and say, I want to be one of your followers. Father, we thank you for your care of us and your instruction to us and the revelation of Jesus Christ for us. May it help us, guide us, encourage us, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.